This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, this is Matthew calling from Chicago. Let's have a quick legal question, kind of to follow up on a question I heard on last week's episode, and that was, how can they convict on confession alone without any type of evidence to back up the confession? My question is, what if there is some evidence, slightly corroborating evidence, say the glove, for example, they find his DNA on this glove, but uh, it turns out that the chain of custody on that glove would make that evidence inadmissible. Would that mean that then that confession would also not be admissible without the proper evidence to go along with that? Okay, so he brings up a good point about chain of custody, which refers to how an item is collected from a crime scene or any other place and how it's maintained in terms of its integrity all the way through the process so that we know that the item that's in court is the actual item that was collected and tested. In Georgia, chain of custody is important, but you don't have to show an entirely complete chain of custody. There can be breaks in the chain of custody and it still be admissible. I'm not suggesting that there are any breaks in the chain in this case because we just don't know. But if there's a little bit of a break, it can still be admissible. And the judge would instruct the jury that that would go to the weight that they give any evidence, not its admissibility. But it would be a type of corroboration that could be used to corroborate a confession if there is one. Would they still have to have other evidence besides a confession if that were to be thrown out? If, for example, under that hypothetical, they wanted to use the glove as some type of corroboration and it turns out it's not admissible, then they would still need something else, even a statement from another witness. For example, hypothetically, if Bo turns out to be a witness. that Something would- else, but it could just be Bo's testimony yes. or someone else's testimony. Just slight corroboration is all that's required. Hi there, this is Angie in Canada. And my mind is just blown by the developments in this case, and I think you guys are doing a great job. I had a couple of things that I was um, wondering about. The first one is, initially it seemed that there was some kind of confession maybe from Ryan, which makes it seem odd that his lawyer would request this gag order in the first place. I'm just curious about that, if there is any reason that there might be a gag order if he's planning to plead guilty to something. And also, I'm wondering if it's possible that there would any charges down the line for anyone who may have covered up this information about um, this pecan growth story coming out 10 years ago. Um, if anyone had found that out and then concealed it, um, can they be charged for anything? Okay, keep up the great work. First of all, what what's the gag order? I don't know. I can't think of that part. <laughs> uh, that's the case. That's how they that's how they say it in Canada, I suppose. Down here in the south, we call it a gag order. I'm just kidding with you, but. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to address that question backwards. She's talking about potential charges against third parties. This is all speculation, of course, but if law enforcement determines that there's people that were involved in it, they can still prosecute them. If they find out people have done anything to hinder an investigation, uh, to tamper with evidence, and if any further investigation reveals evidence of that, 
then there could be charges. There's statute of limitations issues, but theoretically, I think charges could be made if there's evidence. It doesn't look like there's going to be at this point, but hypothetically, it's possible. You got to understand that by the time he was appointed a lawyer, he had already made any statements that they would have been asking for prior to taking him into custody. You know, that's the big frustration that lawyers in criminal cases face is by the time they get their client as a client, a lot of times they've already confessed all over themselves and the damage has already been done because it's very difficult to survive a confession as long as the confession was obtained legally. And what happens is police will interview or do some type of an interrogation with someone prior to them being placed into custody. And they will get counsel, of course, after they're arrested. So most of the time, people ignore the Miranda warnings and, and do give statements. Do you think that it's customary for a state-appointed defense attorney in this case to request a gag order? Or is that out of the norm for this high-profile case? The fact that it's a public defender versus a hired lawyer, I don't think makes any difference. I okay. think that it's professionally the responsible thing to do for the defense counsel to ask for it because you go into a case not knowing exactly what you've got on your hands and you figure that out later. So going into it, you have to do everything you can to protect your client's rights, which would include the right to a, a fair trial. And pretrial publicity has an impact on that. So it's it's responsible and, and it's what I would do if there was a case that had this much publicity. Hi, my name is Heidi. And my question is when they first announced that they had arrested Ryan for the murder I read somewhere, and I'm not sure if it was from a legitimate source or not, but that Ryan was in late stages of renal failure and on dialysis. And I just wanted to see if that was true or not, because that kind of feeds into the speculation that maybe he's taking the majority of the rap for Bo because he could be at end of life anyway. So that was just a question that I had. Thank you. The county jail in Osceola or Irwin County is not your typical county jail. It's run by a private company and it contracts its services out not only to Irwin County, but primarily to the federal government. It's used as an immigration deportation holding facility. It holds literally hundreds and hundreds of federal inmates. And the number of people who are in jail on local charges awaiting trial has to be very, very low. When I practiced in that circuit, it probably was less than 10 or 15 at any given time. So there's not going to be a lot of local Irwin County inmates there. But the thing about that facility, and because it holds so many federal inmates, it has more advanced medical facilities than a lot of other smaller county jails in that area would have, because it's really unique. And it's I think it's just happenstance that, that that's where he's held. So if he does have medical needs that other inmates don't have, I think it's reasonable to believe that a lot of that could be handled in-house without having to move him to a hospital. Is that where they would normally keep him, or do you think that he's there for another reason? No, I think that's the county jail. If they house him anywhere else, they're going to have to pay another county to house him. So we may, okay. as well, may as well house him in the facility that they already have. And he can get better medical attention there than he could get at any of the other, you know, smaller county local jails or probably better than you could get at a local jail in the metro Atlanta area. 
Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, this is Mary in Macon, Georgia. I was wondering if, since Bo Duke seems to have so many connections, if it's possible that Ryan Duke could have been compelled by him or his family to confess to a crime that maybe Bo committed. Thanks, guys. Great show. I've seen people make statements or confessions or things that approach the confession that weren't the whole truth. I've seen people make statements that minimized other people's involvement or maybe minimized their own involvement. But I have never seen anyone outright just flip and take the blame for a serious crime. I've seen it in maybe a drug case where you get a bunch of kids in a car and there's some weed in the car and the cops will say, okay, whose is it? I'm going to take everybody to jail unless somebody says it's mine. And then somebody will say, okay, it's mine. Right. So maybe it was all theirs. Maybe it wasn't. Someone took the blame for it and everybody else didn't. But not in a real serious case. I think that is probably very unlikely. Hi, Payne and Philip. This is Kristen Richter from Oklahoma City. I guess the biggest question that I have after this last episode is if Ryan had been arrested before for a DUI, he had been fingerprinted. So if he had been fingerprinted, would the fingerprint have matched the glove? And if it didn't come up as a match, then whose fingerprint is on the glove? Just my first thought. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. Well, we don't know if the fingerprint was on the glove or not. The only thing that was known is that some DNA of some type was on the glove. It's very difficult to take prints off of certain types of material, and a latex glove would be something that I would imagine would be very difficult to obtain a latent fingerprint. Now, that being said, we know that her car was fingerprinted. We know that the scene itself of the home was fingerprinted, and it's possible that some of those prints were around, and Maybe now they go back and see if the fingerprints that belong to Ryan match anything that they may have found at the scene. Now, keep in mind, they've got new prints, too, because he was arrested on this case. They printed him again. So they would have had to have had some reason to compare his prints from the DUI to any prints that they may have collected from the crime scene. And it literally could be that nobody thought to make that comparison. If they had fingerprints from the crime scene, and if they'd entered those into a database called CODIS, Mm -hmm. and if fingerprints from the DUI arrest were taken electronically and also put into that same system, theoretically it could have been a match. But if they used the old 
fingerprint card system and it never got put into that system, there would have been no way to match them up. I mean, I've been in that tiny, tiny little jail in precinct in Osceola. Are they submitting every single DUI and minor arrest that they get in Osceola into this CODIS system? Or, or does it automatically do that? Or is there still a paper system? Or was there in 2010 likely that even if they did have the print and it did match the glove, we would have never known anyways? Yeah, it would have had to have gone into that system. And if you're arrested and it's in using the modern technology and it's all done electronically, then I think it automatically gets fed into that. But unless it went into the system, there would have been no way that the two would have automatically linked up. And we're assuming that they found a print anyway. Right. Crime scene, and we really don't know that. Hi, Payne. My name is Lindsay, and I'm from Hawkinsville. I had a question. If there were people who knew about what happened to Tara, you know, let's say that were closely associated with Ryan or Bo, and they had let the beans fill, so to speak, and told them what happened. Those people who knew and did nothing to let law enforcement or the GBI know, can they be held accountable for basically concealing that? No, they can't be held accountable for simply not reporting a crime. They can be held accountable if they lie to somebody about it, if they obstruct an investigation but they literally can keep that information to themselves and suffer no legal consequences whatsoever. There are certain people like physicians, for example, who are called mandatory reporters of, of like sex crimes and things like that. Abuse. and Correct. But just your ordinary person is not a mandatory reporter, and so there's no obligation. Hi, Payne and Philip. This is Elizabeth in California. My question was... Outside of speculation, what actual facts do we have that point fingers at Ryan for the murder? Thank you. The podcast is awesome. Yeah, I know that wrongful convictions do happen, and that's something that I'm going to talk more about later, but wrongful convictions do happen, and eyewitness identification is, is one of the worst types of evidence that is out there, like eyewitnesses to a crime. It's, it's really unreliable. There is a real thing when it comes to false confessions. That does happen. And we also know that people tell lies to the police and they tell lies to juries. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And we could literally devote, I don't know, maybe a whole podcast episode to this topic. But it does happen. Uh, As far as what evidence is actually there in this case, really all we have to go on right now is the warrants and what they allege, which are fairly conclusory statements. They don't go into a lot of detail. So other than what you've uncovered and what's been released publicly, we don't know what the facts are. Right. And there's been very little, if at all, anything that's been released publicly other than the arrest warrants and the fact that they have been arrested at all and and that Ryan has been charged with murder. As far as the facts that I have, I don't have many at all. But nobody has any facts here because there's a gag order in place that It's preventing the police from telling you what facts that they have that I think that could prevent some of the speculation. But from what I know to be true and what I personally believe to be true is that Tara's body has been found on that pecan grove and that that story has been corroborated by many people and it involves Ryan Duke killing Tara Grinstead. I personally think that that is what the state is alleging here. You know, we don't have all the details of it, but the state feels confident enough to say, 
Ryan Duke killed Tara Grinstead. I'm just choosing to agree with them. Hello, my name is Steven Ferratoli. I'm from Brea, California. My question is this. Do you have any idea how long it takes the GDI from the time a tip comes into their phone line to the time they have a resource available to investigate the tip? Law enforcement was receiving hundreds, probably thousands of tips in this case. So I'm sure they have their own ways of deciding how legitimate it is. And, you know, I have spoken to the GBI at one point and they told me that they vet out everything no matter how silly it is, you know, so that they explore everything. I guess from your experience in the system at all, how quickly do they have a resource to respond to certain things? I mean, if there was a, you know, let's just use the orchard, for example, the pecan orchard, you know, they were clearly digging out there and they got that information from a tip. You know, how quickly do they swoop in and and take care of business when it comes to that kind of stuff? Well, I think the best procedure would be to follow up on the information as quickly as you get it. I think a lot of times tips can be ruled out as being significant almost immediately if it's something that law enforcement knows not to be accurate. They don't necessarily have to go out and send a, a SWAT team of folks out to, you know, start rounding up suspects and making arrests. A lot of it they can filter out based on things they already know. If it has anything uh, to it that says it could be within the realm of, of conceivable possibility, then I think they move on it fairly quickly and get enough information to decide whether or not they need to even go further. So it just depends on the nature of the tip. I think they have plenty of resources, and that's really not an issue. Timing is probably not an issue. And I know people that were involved in this case from the very beginning because I, I remember when it happened, and these are people that I know that were involved in you know conducting these searches for her. And I know that, that there was a lot of information coming in to a lot of different law enforcement agencies involved in, you know, in a short period of time. And, of course, most of it turned out to be nothing. And that's why this case sort of captivated everybody's attention. Hey, guys, this is Alec calling from Nashville, Tennessee. This is my favorite podcast out there right now. And just first want to say great job. I've had a great time following it. My question, I just keep going back to what was said back in like episode six with the kid who committed suicide and left a note that apparently had like 12 names on it saying that they may have been involved with the disappearance of Tara. And I'm just wondering if that note will be obtainable now that this gag order may be lifted and, you know, we have a confession and could Ryan or Bo's name be on it? Well, the answer is no, because that would be in the possession of the GBI. And of course, they're all subject to the gag order. The entire file is subject to the gag order. We don't know, as far as I understand, all the names that are on it. We don't know if it's relevant. We don't know if it has anything to do at all with this case. It may be one of those white rabbits. Hi, I'm Jennifer from Warner Robins, Georgia, and I have a question. It's regarding the gag order. Now that the stipulations have been eased a little bit, I'm wondering if we would be able to find out things that happened while the gag order was in place, such as, is it possible for us to know if Tara's remains were found specifically? Thank you. Keep up the great work. Well, we can't know for sure, at least unless someone violates the gag order. I can read between the lines when I look at the arrest warrant, which indicates that the body was destroyed in Ben Hill County. And I can infer from statements that the GBI made prior to the gag order that items of evidence were, in fact, found. 
So putting that together, I am of the uh, firm belief and opinion that remains were found. And Will that ever come to light soon or before a trial or conviction? Well, you know, at what point does that come out? I think it comes out when the case is resolved in court, whether it's by some type of negotiated plea or if it's a trial. My biggest concern and fear about this case, though, and I've said this before, is that if they do work out a plea deal and they don't want all of the details to be public, even if it's for privacy reasons for the family, you could go into court and you could simply stipulate to the court that there is a factual basis to support the charges and the plea without actually laying out what those facts are. And those facts could therefore not become part of any public record. So, you know, Payne, a lot of people have passed on some questions that they wanted me to ask you about. And one of the ones that seems to be really capturing everybody's attention, now you went down there and you were in Osceola and you visited the current resident of, of Tara's home. And is it true that you just like knocked on the door and, and, and somebody just who doesn't even know you says, hey, come on in? Yeah, that's actually exactly how it happened. I walked to the door, knocked on it, and I hear, come in. And I really couldn't believe it. I looked back at the road. My little brother was there with me. Donald was there in the car. And I was like, are you sure? And I, I mean, I opened the door and walked inside Tara's house. So did they did they look out the window and to see who it was? No, I'm t- the the blinds were shut. There was no window on the door. It was just a completely shut door. There was no way to to see who I was. She never heard my voice yet. I just knocked on the door and seconds later she says come in. And so I just instinctually opened the door very slowly and it was dark in there. And I mean, it was a completely surreal, kind of spooky experience for a second. And, you know, I, I think I mentioned that afterwards. On yeah, the podcast, it was, when I saw you go go in, that's when I got out of the car and kind of just walked around the yard a little bit and was kind of <laughs> listening in on the conversation. Sure and yeah, yeah. What time of day was this? It was daytime, so it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, it's probably four, four or five o'clock. It was, you know. But it was daylight. really dark inside the house. Like, it took a couple seconds kind of for our eyes to adjust. You guys don't look like very trustworthy characters. I don't know if I would have opened the door. I know. I, I, she could see me. She definitely probably would have let me in there. She had no qualms whatsoever just letting anybody in her house. I thought that was very Unless very you walk strange. around and roam, roam and look through the place? I kind of felt weird looking around in there because she was sitting on the couch and she was having some private time with the television and, you know, all the lights were out in there. It seemed like it was, I was really kind of in somebody else's stuff in her house. Well, you were. But yeah, I was, yes. But I did ask her, I was like, you know, do you mind if I kind of look around for a second? I just, it's so surreal being in here. I just had to, you know, I had to check it out a little bit. So I just peeked in the kitchen and kind of peeked around to the other room, which would have presumably been Tara's room. It was completely surreal. I thought I was just going to knock on the door and, oh, they're not home. Let's go. Right. It was, and the, the, the weird thing, and this will always stay with me, was, you know, when I, when I walked in, Payne was already having like a, a, just a cordial conversation with her about the, you know, the home and about people coming, coming by. And, um, first thing I noticed was she was just, uh, you know, an older black woman sitting on the couch, uh, watching the Andy Griffith show in black and white. And it was just like <laughs> a real throwback. 
of like just in, in like a time capsule. It was textbook like yeah, it was movie a, scene. But yeah, no, she was real polite. I mean, she was obviously you know welcoming and, and let us in in her home and uh, said we could come back anytime if we wanted to shoot something there or, or you know walk around the property. And she said a lot of people. No one really comes to the door, but a lot of people, you know, she'll catch just kind of driving by or, or looking at the house from outside. But yeah, we're, I guess, one of the first people to actually knock on the door and, uh, you know, check it out. Now, the question I've got for you, Donald, then is, did, did she indicate if she was aware of the significance of the house that she was in? Yeah, she was very aware. Um, yeah, she knew. She knew exactly what, what had happened there or, you know, with, with Tara um, and didn't seem shaken up by it at all she was actually very forthcoming about her her herself and how she was confident that you know nothing would happen to her she she was she she was yeah, basically she, like look i'm i'm ready if anybody comes in here with some bullshit basically i'm i'm ready for them i didn't uh, use her voice cuz i i never talked to her about using her voice on the podcast so i didn't really put our conversation in there but yeah she was really kind of funny about how she had no problem defending herself if someone else was trying to you know go in there and do something yeah, she I means she she acknowledged knowing what the significance of the house was and that Tara had lived there. She kind of just said that most people just kind of drive by and stare and look at her like she's not supposed to be in there. And that was us actually, you know, a, a month or so before we, you know, were combing the neighborhood and just yeah, that's drove by before before Payne had the courage to go to the front door and she was actually sitting out on the porch. So we this was the second she's time we've seen her to us the <laughs> yeah, month prior. Exactly. <laughs> we've yeah, we drove by a couple times and um yeah, we saw her out there and actually talked to uh, the the chief, Billy Hancock, about her because obviously he he knows the residents over there and, and is familiar with her. So he made mention that she was a nice lady and was probably welcoming. And then we didn't actually go and actually pop in on her until this last trip. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it was um, it was interesting. Well, the other question about the visit that people have asked me to pass on to you that maybe you can shed more light on is you mentioned in episode 15 about going over to where you knew the glove to have been recovered from and that it was in an unusual place. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yes. I mean, from all the pictures I've seen and the descriptions I've had from Maurice and Billy Hancock and even just seeing the statements made by, you know, Gary Rothwell from the GBI, I knew where the glove was from a a sketch or the pictures and sort of looking at Google Maps or even being there from the road and seeing it. But not until I was in the yard and I saw pretty much, you know, what was the precise area that the glove was found. And it just didn't seem to make any sense as to how it would have got there. And I mean that by it wasn't right in front of the door or really in front of the door at all. It was to the side. If the glove was dropped on accident, you would assume that someone was running or walking by. So that person had to have walked or stood right there in that particular spot or was running right through that area. And it just made no sense to me why someone would be heading that direction because one, it's not a good place to hide your car. You know, the other side of the house makes a lot more sense or directly across the street. And two, it kind of just goes straight into the neighbor Joe's yard. It's almost the longest route to the road. Again, if you were to take that, you know, make a line from the door to the road and, you know, assume that they dropped the glove along the way. It just doesn't make any sense for it to be there. Now, someone could have totally tossed it, but if you were to assume that it was accidentally dropped, it just didn't seem like the likely place. What about weather? Do we know what the weather was like on the 
24, 48-hour period when she was missing and before she was didn't show up for I work. know that it didn't rain. I don't know if it was windy or anything. I mean, typically it's not extremely windy in Georgia in general. Of course, it could have blown over somewhere, but assuming that that didn't happen, which I think is a, a fair assumption, I just thought the placement of the, the glove was odd. Trying to make sense of it being there from somebody dropping it, I still don't know why they were heading that direction. I mean, they totally could have been, but I don't know why. It didn't seem like it made the most sense. Yeah, it was, uh, if you come out the front door, the the closest places to park is either in the carport, which is to the right, or you're going to go straight out the front door across the lawn, which is where I was parked. Either one of those directions is not out the front door and to the left, which is where the glove was found. And if you're going that way, it would be the worst place possible, like you said, to park if you were going to go from that front door to the... Again, and the longest route to the, very, the road. Yeah, the longest route to, to the road. So I mean, especially if you, were, if you were carrying a body or something like that and you were trying to be very quick and covert about it, it just seems like the there, wrong There's no cover that way. Yes, yeah, no there's cover. no cover that way either. Like when you go to the right, there's, you know, kind of bushes along the side road and there's the carport. There's a lot of cover if you go out into the right. Out into the left is just, there's nothing, there's nothing there. It's the, the wrong place that you want to go if you're trying to conceal something or hide something. I, I mean, there was just a lot about the house that you really don't understand unless you're there on the property, driving around, walking around. Um, it wasn't until I was actually in the yard standing there and you kind of point out it was here. I'm like, yeah, it was here. Yeah. Uh, this, this, in the this, pictures, this, it kind of seems a little bit different. Everything's always a lot smaller. Oh, a lot smaller. Yeah, I mean, the house is a lot smaller. You know, e- even in your memories, like, oh, I thought this was so big. It's like, oh, I ended up being, you know, it was so tiny now in real life. You know, same sort of thing. Even from the road, once I walked into the yard and to the front door, everything just kind of shrunk and it became a lot smaller. And then all of a sudden being there and, you know, having a point of view of a person who was there at some point too, I was like, what the hell? This is, doesn't really make sense. Like once you're here and standing here and you're looking at it. Okay. So on Facebook, Anna Claire wants me to ask you, are there any other cases you're interested in? There are tons of cases we're interested in since up and vanish started. And since this kind of, you know, recently blew up a little bit, we've had tons and tons of emails from people um, with case suggestions, some, you know, even their family or their friends or, you know, different cases that are, you know, dear to a lot of people. So we, we have been sent, I would say in the hundreds and hundreds of cases, we, we probably received 10 to 15 cases a day. Um, so we definitely have no shortage of cases right now. So we're kind of just going through them right now and, and looking at them and kind of making our own assessments and trying to read all the emails and trying to really take into account everyone's story. Obviously, you know, picking a case for season two is a big deal. We, we know that. We know that kind of, you know, from a podcast standpoint, where the bar has been set as far as trying to find another case that we, we can have an impact on and, you know, come together again like we have. Well, this dovetails into the, the next question I have here, another one from Facebook. Sunshine Moody asks, and I'm going to break this up into a couple of parts. He says, are you sticking with this case till the very end? Yeah, that's something we've been, you know, I've talked about a couple times recently, not really on the podcast yet, but, you know, we did say we were going to do 18 episodes. So we're still going to do 18 episodes. We promised that. But like you said, you know, I picked the number 18 
before Ryan Duke's arrest and before Bo Duke's arrest. So things have changed a little bit and, you know, we have to tell the whole story. This has to have the right ending. So we're not going to end it abruptly just because we said we were going to go to 18 episodes. I think that it can go beyond 18 episodes because the future is so unforeseen. We're in a spot where we don't, I don't know personally how many episodes I want to commit to, but I think that it will go beyond 18. I'm not sure what the number will be, but we're going to keep going until the story is, is complete and we've and told even everything. And if there's another case that... We'll always give updates on Tara's case, you know, but at some point we have to say, hey, we're moving on to a, another case and that would be the end of this season, but we will always follow Tara's case and we'll always follow up on different leads and developments in this case and the trial and anything else that happens. So, you know, we're a part of Tara's case now. We're, we're always going to cover it. But like you said, at some point, you know, we have to go on to a second season at some point, we're going to have to. So we can promise you 18, probably go on for a little bit after that. But um, at some point, we're going to move on to a second case. We'll always update you on Tara Grinstead. And the second part of her question is for me, asking if I'm going to become a recurring speaker on the podcast. Well, I think that's obvious because we're here speaking about it right now. <laughs> Get the hell now. out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there's a little bit more to that question that we can elaborate on maybe later. But the short, sure. answer, short answer is yes. Somebody's asking about the black truck. They really want more black tr- truck information because there's, there was, at the end of episode 14, there was a reference to the black truck, and then there was nothing about it in 15. Um, that's because that is really as far as that story went. There's not much that I cut out that I didn't play for you of that. And just to be clear, he said that he was sitting inside of a truck talking to a person he believed to be Ryan Duke, and he firmly believes that, and Bo Dukes was there. But he didn't know for sure if that was Ryan's truck or if Ryan had access to a truck. I've talked to a lot of Ryan's friends. Nobody remembers Ryan having a black truck, but I have found that these two would have had access to a black truck. You know, I don't want to put too much effort and thought into trying to make the black truck theory work. I know it's people tend to do that. You know, it's kind of a, a common mistake when you first start investigating something is trying to make the pieces fit. The black truck could have totally been a coincidence or Ryan Duke could have drove a black truck that night. We, we, we don't know. I think that what that interview told us was that they had access to a black truck. That truck wasn't white. That truck that Ryan Duke was sitting in with that guy, you know, in a time period very close to Tara's disappearance was a black truck. And that's all we know about it until we can find some more information on that. I'm basically going to combine a lot of questions that I'm getting into one because there's a common theme and people, people want to basically say, uh, what, what else do you know, Payne, that you're not telling us? So, so why don't you just tell us? <laughs> it's not really like that. I mean, of course I know some things that not everybody may know, but you know, the things that I do know I got from other people. So I think it comes down to, I mean, the same reason the GBI would keep their case files closed is the same reason I wouldn't just tell you everything I know as soon as I find it out on one podcast episode. You know, of course, I have to pace myself and I'd be lying if I told you it was easy to not just get excited and tell you some information that I think is really important and can really help solve this or lead to 
another clue. So, I mean, it's difficult to not tell everybody everything all the time, but I think that if everybody knew where I was at the whole time in, in my own investigation, then I would have no investigative edge. Everyone would always know, oh, well, well Payne's looking at this right now. We know everything he knows, so he's never going to get to the truth. And from what I've observed, and I think it's important for people to understand, you, you need to go and, and confirm and verify things to the extent that you can. You may learn about something on one week, but it might be five, six, seven weeks before it makes its way into an episode, even if it does, because you've got to figure out where it fits into the whole thing and into how you're, you're telling the story. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you a bunch of random facts that don't go together at all. Some that I know 100% to be true, some that I haven't completely verified yet, but it wouldn't be a story for you. And what I'm also trying to do, like you said, is, is tell the story for you too. You know, there's a reason why you're not investigating it and I am. It's because you would prefer to listen to it. Now, maybe you want to investigate your own case too, or you would like to be with me investigating it, but you're not. So I'm trying to make this a, a really easily digestible story and sort of a capsule of everything that's happened so it can live on forever and people can come back and, you know, know nothing and easily digest everything and, you know, it's really confusing to me when it all comes in. So I try to spend a lot of time making it not so confusing. It's kind of like in, in back in school when teachers wanted you to read the whole book for the book report yeah. rather than Cliff just notes, the Cliff baby. Notes version, right? I'll, I'm Cliff Notes only. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the black truck is a perfect example. When you, If you go back to that episode, there was a lot of information about the black truck that had been collected over several weeks or months with several people of different neighbors talking about a similar incident on the same night. And, you know, it, it wouldn't have been as effective. It wouldn't have been as big of a piece of uh, evidence um, or even a theory if you had to kind of strung that out. If first time you heard about the black truck, you mentioned it and then, oh, I, someone else told me about a black truck. And then there's really no consistency with the how the story is being told or like providing people with more concrete evidence versus just everything that you know at every given time, at any given time. So, yeah, you just have to present it in the right way to where it actually makes sense, um, you know, for the listening public. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, in episode one, like that week, you know, it wasn't as big of a deal. I mean, ethically it would be, but if I had, you know, put out some misinformation. But now it's, you know, there are so many listeners and people who have their eye on this it's a completely different responsibility that I have. Obviously, that hasn't changed the way I work, but I'm a lot more aware of that. And I, I'm seeing firsthand the impact that the podcast is having in this case. And what I mean by that is people in this case referring to it and relying on it for some of their information. Obviously, the police aren't relying on the podcast for their information, but a lot of people in the town do. And most people across the country who are tuned into this case follow the podcast as well. So, you know, it's being brought up in the courtroom. It's not just covering the story anymore. It's kind of worked its way into the story. And I fully recognize that now. And I, I've, I just view it as a responsibility. So I'm, you know, I try to vet everything out and I think about things a little bit differently and the impact it's going to have not only on myself, but the case Tara, everything before I just go out there and say it. But 
that's not going to hold me back from saying something that I, that I want to say. I'm just going to make extra sure and be extra cautious and know what it is I'm saying when I'm saying it. And so far I've done that. And that's why some things are slow to come out. And this time it may be a little bit slow. I mean, I've always done that, but it might be a little slower now because this is really in real time. You know, it was in real time, you know, a few months ago, but there weren't people who were arrested. It's fair to say that the arrests that were made in this case sort of changed the trajectory of what you may have had in mind for the direction of the season, right? Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, there are things, uh, you know, that that we planned on covering from 13 to 18 that will probably never be covered just because they're, you know, dive deeper into persons of interest who we now know were likely not involved or even other people that, you know, we may end up revisiting just kind of depending on how those stories play out and what, what else we learn within, you know, how this trial plays out or, or the information that comes from the GBI. Yeah, well, I mean, what the arrest did, in my opinion, it, it allowed us to focus in on something now. You know, we, because we didn't have the case files, we couldn't make up our own assessment. We couldn't rule anybody out entirely. We, we did sort of rule some people out in the beginning and kind of moved on past them throughout the podcast. But we never said, ah, they're ruled out. You know, we didn't ever officially rule anybody out. But we never really ruled anybody in either. But now we can hone in on the state's theory and conduct our own investigation, which we've been doing. And I believe the state is correct here. And it falls in line with other things that I've learned throughout this that I haven't really shared yet. And it, it matches a lot of things that I did learn about early on, but didn't make any sense to me. It didn't really mean anything at all. But now looking back on it, for example, I mean, I'll, I'll elaborate on this later, but I have a picture on my phone from August of 2016, and it's a group of boys. Do you know who's in that picture? Bo Dukes is in that picture. From August? Someone From August. You obtained a picture of Bo Dukes in August of 2016. Yes. Yep. And I, I obtained it for a different reason. I was looking at something else. But all of these little things that really, even then, just appeared to be complete hearsay and just people's feelings and stuff. I was going off of like nothing. I was going off of nothing here. But, you know, I just knew right away there was no way I was completely, completely off. There was no way that this is completely random. And it's true. I wasn't. I, I'm not saying that I was on the hunt and he was next on my list. I'm just saying that they were never far away. It and, was right there in your case file too. And you just didn't know yes, where it fit. Exactly. Yep. So that's what I'm saying. So we'll go back and we'll look at those things. And so that's what we can do now. We can focus in on something for the first time and not have to worry about so much speculation. I think also, you know, a lot of people don't understand how how real time this really is and how we have to kind of dance around what to say, what not to say, what to use, what not to use. I remember sitting in um, Oscilla Star, and this is the Friday after Ryan got arrested and the first time where we start hearing about Bo Dukes, probably earlier that day. And so we're sitting there, complete off-the-record conversation, myself, Payne, Dusty, uh, the mayor happens to just stop by his office, is like, you know, 30 feet away. And he kind of overhears us talking about this entire story that happens to later be 100% true. And the story goes, you know, that this Bo Dukes character who has family ties and this pecan orchard and that's where the body is and where they're searching. And it sounded 
I mean, just listening to the watch, I'm looking at the mayor's face while we're having this conversation and we're talking about, hey, <laughs> do we use his name or do we not use it? That was the big thing we we're talking about. He's kind of shaking and his head. He's like shaking his head like, this is so far-fetched that, and, and then the way the information was coming in was through, you know, friends and family and these, these overheard conversations and these, these things that turned out two weeks later to be completely true and real. So, I mean, next time we go to Osceola and we sit down with the mayor, I'd love to talk to him and, and kind of get his opinion on, you know, just re-remembering that conversation. Yeah, in, in that moment, and I recorded the whole thing, but I only played a part of it in the podcast, but we were there talking for about five, ten minutes. I asked everyone's opinion in the room. Here's what I have been told. Here's what I believe to be true. I believe that the Bo Duke story was true. I had enough evidence, in my opinion, to back it up. So my question was, should I mention this on the podcast? Because it was going to be me going out on a limb and saying, hey, here's what I think happened. And it was a think. It was a, hey, I think this happened. But I firmly believed it. And, you know, the only reason I was really hesitant was because of the active investigation. And that's, you know, that's just a term people throw around. But I saw firsthand an active investigation when I was in Osceola. I, I see these people behaving differently and looking at me differently. So it's not just a word that I'm tossing around when I say that. I say that thinking that this is going to have an impact and could possibly change things for better or worse for me, for you, for them. So I'm look, I'm like taking all these things into account. And so I asked everybody, I think it was the mayor who said, you know, you've done such a good job up into this point with not delivering misinformation. Is it worth it? for you to be wrong and have to retract that statement. And I decided that it wasn't worth it. And so I decided to censor his name and give him the benefit of the doubt. And I don't have any regrets, but he's not getting any more. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Today's episode was mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. You can check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. As a reminder, next Monday is a case evidence. Thanks for listening, guys, and see you soon. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.